0: You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Well, good morning, everybody. How are we? Yeah, doing good. My Clemson fans, are we okay? Are we okay? I heard, ugh. But you're a Carolina fan, so... A dub's a dub. That's a great way to put it. A win is a win. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I about lost my voice yesterday. I'm not going to lie to you. It was a rough day in the Bailey household, but we made it through. Uh, It's really good to see you guys. If you're a guest, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and it's a pleasure and an honor always uh, to get to be with you as we open up God's Word together this morning uh, as a little church family. So this year, my wife Lauren and I are celebrating our 10th anniversary. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very, very much. We made it a decade, and uh, I feel like that is a very—we feel very proud of that fact, especially because if you were to ask both of us, we would tell you that our first year of marriage was something. It was something. Happily ever after? Not yet. Now it's wonderful. Oh, it's great now. But then it was really quite hard. And honestly, some of that's to be expected, you know? I mean, we were two 20-somethings figuring out how to share life with this person who believe it or not is not like me at all. Like I had no idea really going in. I thought we were very similar, but come to find out this person was not like me. Uh, And I know you might be sitting there thinking like, how could that possibly be? Like the two of you have such sweet dispositions, or at least one of you has a really sweet disposition. And I'll let you figure out which one of us it is. Like, how could it possibly be that y'all would have that kind of conflict? But believe it or not, Bailey's are in a word fiery. Uh, We consider that a feature and not a bug, but in our first, uh, in our first year, it led to many robust exchanges of ideas. Uh, And I can remember one in particular, not because of what it was about. Honestly, if you were to ask me, I really, I couldn't tell you what it was about. I don't remember. I don't remember it because of what it was about, but I remember it because of what happened. So she and I had been going back and forth uh, and I ran my mouth as I tend to do because I have a problem. When I argue, I play for keeps. It's a really big issue for me, but I was running my mouth and I was saying things to just kind of like needle at her or dig at her and, you know, get, get the wind, so to speak. And at one, point, she just stops, and everything goes quiet, and she walks out of our apartment. And I go, uh-oh, what, what just happened? What's going on here? Now, keep in mind, I've never dealt with anything like this before, and I'm like, this, this is so strange. What is going on here? Like, I'm used to people arguing the way I argue. I give you a, a spar, you spar right back. That's just how we do. I wasn't prepared for this situation. I'm like, what just happened here? What is... What is going on? Is she just not gonna say anything back? Is she not gonna fire back at me? What, and where the heck is she going? What, what is happening right now? And look, I don't recommend that as a way to you know resolve conflict or anything like that. Like that's not a really great conflict resolution strategy, but I'll be honest with you, in that moment, a switch flipped in me and I realized, man, I in my marriage, I cannot approach every disagreement I have with her. like it's a game to win. I've, I've got to change this is not going to be healthy for us going forward. And so I prayed and I said, God, look, I'm an idiot. Just straight up. I'm an idiot. I I needed to be more understanding. I needed to listen to her and not be so prideful and not be someone who's trying to win. Would you please just bring her back so that we could be okay? Will you bring her back so that we can make this right? And a few minutes later, much to my relief, she walks back in. I apologize. She forgives me and we work through our issue. And all I could think after the fact was, wow. God answered my prayer. He really answered my prayer. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, that's silly. You were desperate, and you did what desperate people do, Michael. She was probably just out in her car talking to her mom on the phone about how big of a jerk you are, right? And she was planning to come back the whole time. God doesn't really work like that. Maybe, certainly on some of those things. But maybe God actually does work like that, too maybe those two things aren't actually mutually exclusive. Maybe he actually listens to us and he's far more involved in our day-to-day life than we want to give him credit for. Maybe, just maybe, our prayers really do matter. Maybe God listens and actually responds. So our journey today through Acts is gonna bring us to Acts chapter 12. And chapter 12 is a marvelous example to us of what happens when God's people pray. And so today, our theme, what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about prayer today because what we see happening is that when God's people pray, God actually does something. But so here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a Bible and I want you to turn to Acts 12. That'd be great. That's going to be our, our primary text. But I want you just to put a finger there because before we get into Acts 12, we're actually going to look back in Luke 18 because what happens in Acts 12, it's actually a direct application of something that Jesus taught his disciples to do back in Luke 18. So put your finger in Acts 12 and hold tight for a little while. I promise after a few minutes, we will eventually get to Acts 12, but we're going to start in Luke 18 today. So we'll pick up in Luke 18. Verse one, and this is what Jesus says. He says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So sometimes Jesus will teach a parable and it'll be really confusing and the disciples will have to come to him afterwards, like away from all the crowds and be like, hey, Jesus, you wanna explain what you were talking about right there? Like, can you just kind of like bring us in and Jesus will have to explain it to them. But that's not the case here. Jesus upfront tells them that he's telling this parable with two specific goals in mind. First, that his people would be a people who always pray. And two, that they wouldn't lose heart when they do. That in every situation, in the good times and the bad times, in the times of joy, and the times of meh, in the times of sadness, and the times of stress, and in the times where everything just feels fine, that they would be a people who always pray. To put it another way, he intends for prayer to be the language of the church. He intends prayer to be the way that we are kind of constantly communicating, as Paul will say, at praying without ceasing to God to God. Martin Luther says, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. That is how essential God intends it to be for his people, but that we would always pray and that we wouldn't lose heart when we do, because Jesus knows that in this broken world, losing heart will probably be our biggest obstacle to prayer. Losing heart in prayer will probably be a chief temptation for us. As we live in this in-between time where God's kingdom is here, but it's, all re- it's also not yet fully here, where sin and brokenness still abound, the temptation to lose heart is all too real, whether that be wondering if our prayers even matter. We prayed and prayed and nothing seemed to happen. And we wonder, does any of this even make any kind of difference? Or that feeling that we get that God is somehow far away, or doesn't hear us, or doesn't care because he obviously has more important things going on than what I'm currently going through. And I find this parable so encouraging because it tells us that Jesus actually knows. He knows those things about us. He knows that prayer can be hard for us, which means he's never actually surprised when it's hard for you. He's never surprised when it's hard for you. He knows and he wants to help us. And his help in Luke 18 comes in the form of a parable. Verse two, he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. So the picture that Jesus is painting here is that there was this judge and he was not A good one. He didn't care what God thought, and he wasn't concerned with caring for people either. Basically, he's the exact type of person that you don't want to be reliant on for justice. And then there was this widow. Now, widows in this culture were a symbol of helplessness. She lived in a world where it was very difficult for women to make a good living on their own, and there weren't things like retirement plans or welfare funds or anything like that that could be a support structure for her. So if her husband died, she was probably struggling financially. She had no one to take care of her. She was vulnerable to being taken advantage of. And here, something has apparently happened to her. Maybe someone stole from her or tricked her or whatever it is. Something has happened, and she wants it to be made right. She wants justice. And she knows the judge is the only one who can give it to her, but she has nothing going for her. No financial resources, no powerful friends to bribe him with. The only thing that she can do is ask. She, she realizes that while she doesn't have much, she does have one thing, persistence. Verse 3 says, she kept coming to him. She didn't give up. She didn't stop. She knew this judge was her only shot. So she just kept coming to him over and over asking for what she needed. Which, real quick side note, some of us don't pray because we don't think we're spiritually mature enough to, or we don't have all the theological knowledge necessary to pray well. Maybe you're a brand new Christian and you just don't want to say something dumb when you pray or something like that. Here's the really encouraging part of what Jesus is teaching. He's saying, you don't need all that. Jesus is saying, can you ask for the same thing over and over and over again? And that's really all you need. You're already uh, down the road of a prayer life. But check out what happens. Verse four, for a while he refused. So for a while, nothing happened. But afterward, he said to himself, "Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming." This awful judge eventually gets to the point where he goes, "I'm just going to give this widow what she wants because if I don't, she is never going to stop bothering me. She is going to make my life miserable because she will not give up." He acts in nothing but his own self-interest here. He's basically saying, "I could care less about her or what she wants." but I'm gonna give her what she's asking for just so I can get some peace and quiet. And Jesus says, take note. Take notice of what happens. Verse six, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? So just to be clear, Jesus is not comparing himself to the unrighteous judge. He's contrasting himself with the judge. He's saying, if this is how the worst judge you've ever seen will eventually respond to the persistent widow, how do you think God, who actually cares for you, will respond to you? If this is how this judge will be, how do you think God, who actually loves you, will respond to you? His point is, what should motivate you to pray and keep praying is knowing that the God of the universe is not indifferent towards you. He's not indifferent towards you at all. In fact, the God of the scriptures is way, way better than that. The Bible is clear that if you put your trust in Jesus, you are God's child. That is who you are now. Because of his work on the cross, you now belong to him. And that means that he cares about you and he cares about what you need. He cares about what you're facing in life, however big or small it might seem to you. And he actually delights for you to come to him with these things. And he delights to do something about it. So the best way I can think to describe it to you is like, think about if like a random kid showed up at my house and was like, hey, mister, can you help me with my homework? I'm probably going to be like, nah, dude. I hated homework when I had to do it. And where are your parents? Like, what is, what's happening here? But if my son comes up to me and he says, hey, dad, I'm really struggling with this math problem. Can you help me? I'm going to say, absolutely, buddy. 100%, I'm going to help you. More more precisely, I'm going to say, absolutely, buddy. I don't understand the new math they make you do, but I will happily stare. (laughs) I will happily stare at this blank, at this page with you blankly. Like, that's what I'll do. Because why will I respond that way? Because he's mine. He's my kid, and I have a rooting interest in his life. I want good for him, so I'm going to be willing to step in and and interact with him and help him where he needs it. And all that being said, the Bible says that that is God's heart towards his kids as well. He has an expressed interest in you and the things you ask him for too. Not because you're amazing or anything like that, but because by the blood of Jesus, you belong. To him. And for us, that has to be the very foundation that our prayer life is built on. That is the foundation for prayer, that when we pray, we are children coming to our good and loving heavenly father, a God who loves us, a God who wants us, a God who wants to hear from us and delights in us and wants to do something about the things that we bring before him. And this is precisely what Jesus teaches about prayer elsewhere too. In Matthew 7, he says, or which one of you, if his son asks, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see, the context of prayer is always the relationship between a father and a child. When we pray, We are not submitting proverbial service request tickets to the complaint office of heaven, okay? That's not what's taking place. We're not just hoping that God will eventually get around to drawing our number. And when we pray, we're not coming to God like he's some sort of magic genie or a cosmic butler or anything of that sort, but rather we're coming to him as children, speaking to their dad. Their dad who loves them, our perfectly good and loving heavenly dad. And the point being, the invitation to prayer is the invitation into the world of the widow and the world of a child who persistently come to their father with what they need. Why? Because that's what kids do. That's what kids do. Kids with good dads don't hesitate, do they? They don't hesitate to ask. They just ask for things constantly. They just go naturally. In my experience, that's a child's native language, just to constantly ask for things. I have two little kids and a third on the way, and their basic job description is to ask me for things. Daddy, can you get me some water? Daddy, can you open this applesauce pouch? Will you open it for me, Daddy? Daddy, I can't reach the light switch. Will you turn the light on, Daddy? Daddy, will you read me this book? Daddy, 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 Daddy. They always incessantly ask for things. And here's the thing. They don't hedge their requests when they ask either. They're not like, Daddy, now look, you, you don't have to do this for me. It's totally, it's totally okay if you don't. But it seems to me that it would be really helpful if I could have a cup of water right now to drink with my dinner. But if that's not what you want, then that's fine, and I'm fine, and we're fine, everything's fine. No, they never do that. That because that's ridiculous. They don't talk to me like that because even with all of my sin and flaws, my kids know that I am here for their good that I love them and that I have the power to help them. So what do they do? They just come to me and ask for what they need. They know I'm not out to get them and I would never hear their request for water. And instead of handing them a cup of water, just like toss it at them, they would never think anything like that. And certainly that doesn't mean that I always say yes to everything. Sometimes I have to say no or not right now, but here's the thing. Even when I do, I say it because I'm factoring in things that they don't even know about. So if I say no to their request for ice cream, it's because I'm thinking about nutrition and the effects of sugar on small children or how angry their mom is gonna get if I spoil their dinner or something like that. I'm still thinking about their good, even when I say no or even when I say not right now. And their good is something that I am never, ever, ever going to withhold from them. I love the way that Paul Miller talks about it in his book, The Praying Life, which is probably my favorite book ever on prayer. He says it this way. He says, in this way, prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are and gives us his gift of salvation. And in prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. And when it comes to being a people who pray always and don't give up, the question for us is always going to be, do we believe that this is really who God is? Do we believe that this is really how God feels towards us and looks at us because of Jesus as his kids, who he loves and delights in and wants to help? And that last line from the parable, Jesus says, nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? He connects prayerfulness with faith because what drives prayer is faith or trust that this really is who God is, that he loves us and he has the power to help. That, that, that he really is the type of father, and our confidence in that is part of the foundation on which we build our life of prayer. All right, so that's what Jesus taught. I know that's a long time in Luke, so let's finally get over to Acts 12 because we're in a series on Acts, so we need to get there, right? Let's look, look over at Acts 12, and let's answer the question, did the early church actually take Jesus for his word here? Did the early church actually believe Jesus and trust trust what he said when it came to prayer? We'll pick up in verse 1. Acts 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, this is Herod Agrippa, son, a grandson of the king Herod who sought to kill Jesus from way back in the gospel accounts when Jesus was a baby. Uh, even though his grandpa ruled in Judea, Agrippa was, was actually raised in Rome and apparently only got the gig because he was childhood playmates. Y'all good, Becky? Becky? Oh, no, 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 no. We got so much longer, guys. My bad. I didn't know what was happening. And I was... <laughs> you said There's another one in a long time from now. We haven't even got the axe. <laughs> All right. So where were we? Acts 12? Herod, Agrippa? Okay, great. Hey, we family here. There's always something fun. All right. Anyway. All right. So the Herod in this text is Herod Agrippa. Uh, He's the the grandson of King Herod who sought to kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby. Uh, He basically got the gig because he was childhood playmates with some future emperors. Uh, As they say, it pays to know people. Right. Anyway, uh, it's suggested that some of this persecution that he's showing towards Christians actually may have been done to win some favor with the Jews. Sort of a like, please your base situation. But regardless of why he did it, it got really, really bad. For the church. This is what it says in verse two. It says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. If you're familiar with Jesus' 12 disciples, these are the sons of the fishermen Zebedee, uh, the ones that J- Jesus nicknamed sons of thunder. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So basically, Herod's been persecuting the church, and he's doubling down on that persecution. He's killed James, and now he's seeking to kill Peter as well, and create something of a spectacle for the Jewish community. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest, that word earnest there is like fervent or prayer without ceasing. Like the church was getting after it. They were praying for God to move and do a thing. And this is exactly what Jesus told them to do. And look what happens in verse six. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. Fun little Greek nugget. That word for struck is actually a very strong word. The angel basically smacks Peter awake and the chains fell off. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. My man is getting snuck out of jail by an angel. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but he but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them on its own accord, like welcome to Walmart. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Like, duh, bro. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, as in still praying. They'd been going at it all night. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So she's so excited that Peter is okay. She doesn't even let him in. Like she's so overjoyed at what she's seeing and hearing. She forgets, she just leaves him out in the street, this wanted man out there in the middle of the street, twiddling his thumbs. And they said to her, you're out of your mind because believe it or not, people weren't gullible back then either. They were just as skeptical of miracles as we can be. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. So the answer to our question is obvious, yes, they took to heart the very things that Jesus taught them to do. Whatever was in front of them, they prayed. No matter what the circumstances looked like, they prayed. It was the move for them when things seemed out of their control. They were, they were in need like the widow and their knees hit the floor. And they prayed persistently. They know God wanted the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, but right now they knew they had a real problem One of their main leaders had been taken out and another was scheduled to be killed. So they get on their knees and say, God, you've got to make something happen. God, you've got to do the heavy lifting here. We're not going to let you go until you open doors and bless our efforts and overcome our enemies. They just kept at it and wouldn't give up all night. And God responded. There was power in it. God responded in miraculous ways. He moved and he answered their prayers. And that is really the thing that I hope you see from all of this this morning. It's not just that God wants us to persistently pray because it's somehow good for us, but rather that there is power in persistent prayer. That when God's people pray, God actually does something. He does something. When God's people pray, when they follow in the footsteps of the widow or enter into the world of the child, things happen. God moves. Circumstances change. Miracles occur. This is the consistent pattern that we see, not just in Acts, but actually throughout the scriptures. But, but let's take a moment here and, and stop for a second. And let's talk about all this and us for a moment. Like I don't, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but I, I used to get a little hung up with this tension that that exists when it comes to prayer. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God. To say that differently, it means that God runs stuff, okay? That's God's sovereignty, that God rules and reigns over every inch of creation, that he is all-knowing and all-powerful. His will and his desires and his purposes, they will be accomplished. He cannot be stopped. That what he has set out to do He will do, and nothing can thwart it. And yet, the Bible also tells me to pray for God to do these things, for his kingdom to come, for his church, for the things that I need and want to see happen, for him to move and work and do things like what he did in Acts 12 and the gospels and other places in scripture. And so here's where I tend to struggle. I'm like, well, if God's gonna do what God's gonna do, then why do I need to pray? If God's going to do what He intends to do, why should I pray? I'll lose in some respects that sense of sense of urgency, or lose some heart, so to speak. And I think it's because I believed too much in God's sovereignty. But the truth is, is that I lose heart in prayer because I, I believe in it too little. Here's what I mean: It's a bit like how the Bible tells us that God has prenumbered our days, right? He knows and has set the exact number of our, of our days that we will live, and nothing can change it. And you can extrapolate that out and think, well, if that's true, then why eat food? If my days are numbered, and uh, if my days are numbered, then why bother to eat? You might say, well, if I stop eating and then I die, does that mean that that was the number of my days, and God has given up on me all along? Is that what that means? And the correct answer to that question is to stop asking stupid questions and trust God and eat your food. That's the correct answer, because obviously. God's sovereignty is big enough to include your nutritional habits, how you exercise, what you eat, and all of those things. And we know this, obviously. Yet somehow, when it comes to prayer, we can believe that his sovereignty isn't big enough to include our prayers. That somehow these things are separate from each other. But biblically speaking, they aren't. Yes, God does what he wants to do, but he has decided that part of the way he will do what he wants to do is in response to our prayer. As in, there are things that God does only when his people ask him to do them. And the inverse is also true. that There are things that God does not do because his people have not asked him to do those things. When we understand God's sovereignty rightly, it quits being a reason not to pray and becomes more of a reason for us to pray. I love the way that Elizabeth Elliot said it. She said, prayer lays hold of God's plan and becomes the link between his will and its accomplishment on earth. The point is, prayer changes things. That's the point. Prayer actually changes things. This is the consistent pattern we see all over scripture and something that we see happening all over the place in the book of Acts. Every time the church prays, things explode. In Acts 1, they pray in the upper room for 10 straight days. The Holy Spirit comes. Peter preaches, and 3,000 people become believers in one day. In Acts 4, they pray, and God fills them with such a boldness that they turn the city of Jerusalem literally upside down. By the end of Acts 5, the church in Jerusalem is over 10,000 people strong, and some of the harshest critics, like the Jewish priests, and eventually Paul himself, are getting saved. Here in Acts 12, they pray, and God blows up a prison and thwarts the plans of Herod. In the next chapter, chapter 13, they pray, and God raises up Paul to be a missionary, the greatest missionary the world has ever known. And all of these things happen because God's people prayed. Even in our own church, we've seen this time and time again. We've seen marriages on the brink of divorce restored because God's people prayed. We've seen people running from God in all kinds of ways, have a complete about face because it was an army of people who were praying for them day and night, asking God to pull them back. We've seen the bonds of addiction broken, broken relationships restored, financial provision provided, all soaked in the prayers of God's people. Even this building that we're sitting in right now is because there were people praying for years for our little church family to have a permanent home. This is what God does. It's what he's always done, and it's what he's gonna continue to do. Every now and then I'll hear people say something that sounds really spiritual, but is absolutely false. They'll say, Prayer doesn't really change the situation. Prayer changes me. False. False. Okay, partially true. Yes, prayer absolutely changes us, but God could not be more clear. Cover to cover in the Bible, prayer changes things. Prayer changes circumstances. Prayer changes people. Prayer changes outcomes. Prayer changes things. We tend to think of hands being folded in prayer as passive, or maybe even weak, or something only reserved when all other options are off the table. But this story shows us the exact opposite. Prayer is not our last resort. Prayer is our greatest asset. It really is. The clasped hands of the church in earnest prayer move the hands of God to counteract all the moves of the enemy. All the moves of Herod, soldiers, chains, prisons, no match for the power of God when his people pray. I mean, just consider these words of the Wesleyan preacher Samuel Chadwick. This is like my favorite quote ever. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. Our enemy fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. There is no power like that of prevailing prayer. All that being said, the point is, what Jesus has taught them to do, they did. And what Jesus said he would do in response, he did. And the encouragement for us is that God treats our prayers the exact same way. So here's what I'm trying to do for us this morning. I'm trying to reframe all of this for us a bit because I've done this long enough now to know how people typically react and respond to a sermon like this. We hear these words and we start feeling some sort of what I would call vague guilt. Like, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I should be praying more. Like, thanks for giving me another thing on my list of what I'm failing at. Appreciate that, Bailey. Bailey. I want, to ref- I want to reframe that for you a bit because I don't think what we've seen here should produce guilt in us per se. Rather, I think if we can see what prayer really is and what God really does through it, then everything else will actually flow from there. Like if we really understood the power of persistent prayer, then prayerlessness would just seem silly to us. It's like you're drowning while holding an oxygen tank. You don't want to use it? It's like you're starving, but sitting in front of a feast. You don't want to eat. It's like you're dying of thirst while holding a tall glass of ice-cold lemonade. You're not going to drink that? It's like your mid-range jumper isn't falling, but you've got Michael Jordan's phone number. You're not going to call him? Like you got something heavy to lift. And Dwayne The Rock Johnson is your neighbor. You're not going to go knock on his door? I don't want prayerlessness to make us feel guilty. I want it to make us feel dumb. We have direct access, you're welcome, you're welcome. We have direct access to the God of the universe and we don't wanna use it. You have that available to you and you think, nah, I'm just, I'm good on my own. I'm gonna be all right. Listen, again, in Paul Miller's words, there you go, guys. Prayer is asking God to incarnate. I'm gonna say that again. Prayer is asking God to incarnate. And I can honestly think of no better way to say it, that prayer is asking God to come with power and get dirty in the details of your life, to be with you and involved in your very real and often messy stuff, in the place of your desperation, in the place of your need, your pain, your struggle, and even in your apathy. And the encouragement from Luke 18 and Acts 12 is to seize the corner of his garment and not let go. That's the encouragement. Charles Spurgeon once likened it to there being fruit high in a tree, and you have to shake that tree long enough to get that fruit to fall. But whatever you do, don't stop shaking that tree because there's good fruit up there, and it will fall eventually. So keep shaking. Keep coming to God. Bother Him. This is what Jesus has given us access to. So... Let me just ask you this: What is that thing that you have been praying for? What is that thing that God has just pressed on your life, on your heart that you want to see Him do? That you're begging Him to do? Or maybe ask it a different way: What's that thing that you're afraid to pray for? That you you don't want to bother God with? That thing that maybe you've just sort of resigned yourself to accepting? And you're just like, oh, God's not going to do anything about it. Why why bother going to Him with it to begin with? What is that thing that you're desperate for God to do, that provision, that reconciliation of a relationship, that healing, that freedom from some habitual sin, that area of growth, that person you want to see saved and come to know Jesus? Do you see in Acts 12 that in prayer, God is a God who sets prisoners free, who turns cities upside down, and overcomes kings and armies, that through prayer, he's a God who saves and redeems a people lost in sin, that through prayer, he's a God who heals the sick and gives sight to the blind, who comforts the hurting, who restores what is broken, and even a God who brings the spouse back home. So why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we pray? So to end our time, that's exactly what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna pray. We're gonna do what Jesus taught and what the disciples modeled, and we're gonna do our best to bother God by coming to Him. So, I'm gonna give us two options. The band is uh, just gonna play some instrumental music, and we're just gonna create some space to pray together. And you could pray alone. Option one is that you can pray alone if that's what you want, just you and God, it's totally fine. Bring to him whatever, you know, has been on your heart, whatever you're crying out for. Maybe for you, it's just, God, I have not been coming to you at all and I just need to be in your presence and I need to remember that you are my good and loving heavenly father and I just need to exist in that space. That's totally fine. Any and everything going on in your life, just take it to him. And don't, don't worry about getting prayer right. Just tell God where you are and what's on your mind. That's all we're called to do. And if you'd like to pray with someone, that's option two. That's also totally fine. Tell them how they can pray for you. You can grab them, tell them how to pray for you, and y'all can pray together. If you'd like, we're gonna have some people down here in the corners who are available to pray for you. If you just want somebody else to come, to come pray for you, they would love to meet you and pray for you so you can come forward and grab one of them. But let's just keep it simple today and let's do what Jesus told us to do. Let's keep asking. Let's keep shaking. Keep knocking. Keep bothering. Why? Because that's what kids do.